Are you sick and tired of biased hockey talk? Then you have come to the right place. The Drop focuses on the St. Louis Blues, but we also delve into other news from around the NHL. So tell the ref you don't mind the game misconduct penalty. You are headed to the locker room anyway to listen to The Drop. Here's your host, Lance Descott. Thank you once more for joining the Drop Podcast. As always, I am your host, Lance Descott. It's been a while since I've been on, you know, through some health issues and been doing a lot of different things, but I'm back now and hopefully we can make these uh, podcasts more regular. There's a lot going on around the NHL. Uh, Everybody's aware of the finals and, you know, that's the big story. But there's another big story that I want to talk to this gentleman about. He's the AZ sports guy. It's Matthew Jacobson. Matthew, welcome to the drop. Uh, it's, it's good to be here. I appreciate you actually got AZ right. A lot of people think it's Arizona, but like, <laughs> no, I just like the two letters. It sounds best. Yeah. I had, I had, I had one person say, who's that as guy? I go as guy. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, I, I've delved into the Phoenix situation and I, I know somewhat, I think I'm a pretty, I'm pretty involved and pretty educated on it, mm-hmm. but you're a lot more educated on, on it with me. And one of the questions I have is that it seems like when they were first talking about this vote, that it seemed like there was a lot more upbeat people around it. And there was more push of the people being vocal that wanted it to pass Then about, I'd say two, three months before it was scheduled to go out from last month, it kind of turned the tide. And from what my friend out there tells me, he saw more people with signs saying vote no on this and vote no on that, you know, don't make the rich richer and don't give the rich free things. Mm-hmm. And it seemed at one time, just all of a sudden, it switched in the people that didn't want the arena and the entertainment center took over the voice of the people that did want it. Why do you think that happened? Uh, just to simply put, um, it, it starts with the no campaign got started first. And I actually made a video, I think a couple of weeks after I noticed Tempe first really getting going. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, essentially, Javier, you got to do your job. Like, you got to start getting going. And I, I started to calm down pretty much, and everyone was pretty confident when they got their, their yes campaign going. Um, but then in hindsight, the amount of stuff that came out and was pointed out, uh, it was reported nationally that the the front office staff was going door to door, which was true. And they were saying, oh, you know, this means that they're they're super nervous. They literally had a party scheduled and a, a press conference scheduled for the next day that was canceled. They, they thought internally they were going to win by 10 points. So what I think what happened was they got arrogant. Just, just straight up, they got arrogant. They allegedly cheaped out. One of the reports I was reading was the no campaign spent about $2 million, including money wow. uh, from a, a union that wasn't even going to get the work. And as Steve Peters said on PHNX, like, what did you win there? And <laughs> and to keep my own personal political beliefs out of it, I just want to bring the question that, you know, I would be quite upset if I – you know, was in that union and my money got thrown away to literally nothing. Mm-hmm. But the Coyotes spend allegedly, you know, $250,000 on this Alex Morello. Uh, they just, I, I feel like they got arrogant. They either hired yes men or people that were John Chikas mm-hmm. that were snake oil salesmen. And um, they just, they did not get the proper messaging. They didn't do everything they needed to do. And they just acted like it was all going to come come to it and the the no campaign while i i i stand with craig morgan on this they ran a very dishonest campaign 
they had people that had done this before and by all means you got to win and that's what they did yeah and i'm not a political person and i'm like you i don't like to talk about things and, and you know, I, I stay neutral for several reasons one's my religion another's personal feelings uh, but you know in my mind something like this it should always come down to the fans of the team and the people in the area. Yeah, you want support from your political leaders, but you know, with the more political people you get involved in, in stuff, the more it just messes it up. And I know you had to have them involved in this because that's who was voting and stuff. But uh, you know, it just seems shocking to me because, like you said, I I wasn't sure if it was going to pass from what I was being told. I knew it was going to be really close. Bill Armstrong was out there. Uh, the, the beat reporter Patrick Brown was out there. I think Javier as well. Um, Marulo stays pretty pretty back on a lot of this. Javier really is the, the spokesperson. Craig Morgan confirmed. Another thing is, when you look at the Coyotes, they've never been a franchise that's been able to sell out arenas. But they had several good years. I mean, in the in the mid to late nineties, you've got fifteen thousand five hundred from ninety six to. 99 and then it just drops down a little bit to about i think 15 15,000 and if you keep going keep going down they're in the 14 15,000s in about 2010 it goes down 20 2009 2010 to a little under 12 then it jumps back up but what's amazing to me is people kind of knew that this was coming up with this team and in 2019 and 20 they averaged a pretty good amount i mean yeah when bad teams come in you're not going to see as many people but they averaged almost 15,000, I think it was 14.7, 14.6 uh-huh. in 2019, 2020. And then everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall with the way things were going with the arena. And then 21, 22, you guys only average 11,000. But, you know, even though the Mullet Center only holds about 5,000 people, I know people get, yeah, you're only fill, you're only selling out 5,000 people. Well, you can only sell out how many tickets you have. You can't yeah. sell 15,000 tickets yeah, to a 5,000 seat arena. arena is, I, I love that building. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned it on, on the other show that I'm on Locked On, that, that the temperature, at least for me, has kind of changed. Mm-hmm. Um, with Mullet Arena works if the Tempe building is down the pipeline. With the Tempe building off off of the radar, it just feels weird. Mm-hmm. But to, to go back to the, like, the attendance thing, yeah, it's – uh, I, I was actually speaking with Steve Peters like a week a week or so ago, and you know he, he kind of said the exact same thing my dad told me uh, is that when they were at America West Arena, like that was a hot ticket. And and Steve Peters gave me a little more context. Uh, I've seen footage of the whiteouts from from those, and and I, I made sure to ask him when I, when I got to talk to him. Like 2010 was this phenomenal moment for me, finally witnessing the whiteout. 2010, 2011, 2012, and from what I was told, that that still had nothing on on the atmosphere downtown and I, I i just feel like this team definitely flourishes more in the east valley and they also had better management and a better owner back then and and the 2019 2020 spike that makes sense for a lot of reasons because you bring in phil kessel you bring in taylor hall i was excited everyone's excited because they're making these moves to push into the playoffs and in hindsight, yeah, I fully admit, you know, I got a little too into the hype and they pulled the trigger too early and they ruined that core and they had to go to another full rebuild in order to really, you know, get to where they want to be. But that was such an exciting time. And it's just, I, I've seen them be able to fill the building. Obviously, they're, they're not averaging a sellout. They, they never have. America West Arena, they were close, but, you know, the, the atmosphere is just different. You had the novelty. You had the, the, the constant playoff appearances. But it, it's just, I've seen that passion here, and I I want them back in Phoenix or somewhere in the East Valley because I, I want to see that again. I, I really do. 
it makes more sense being there, you know, because you're closer to more people. And yeah, I know a lot of people like to have stadiums outside of the hustle and bustle of a city, way outside. But a lot of times, man, it, it just excites the whole city when you can have a stadium that's more centralized or arena where you can get more people there. Um, another question I had for you is, why couldn't they work something out at Gila River Arena? Did they just not want to play there? Was the, I know the lease was up and the people, the, the, the group that owns the arena didn't want to deal with them. You want to give me a little background on that? Because I know what kind of what happened, but oh, maybe I you can tell me a little bit more some of the to, fans out there. I know way too much about this. So um, after, I forget which year it was because <laughs> a lot of these start to blend together and I was still in high school, this is going on, but they Glendale broke the 15-year lease they originally had um, and, and there was some legally questionable grounds, but it was never pursued further and they did a year on year thing. And what was going on is Glendale, they wanted a long-term lease. The reports were anywhere between 15 and 20 years, but the confirmed report, this is literally on, on record in one of Craig Morgan's stories from the Glendale city planner is that they wanted a 15 year lease. And this, this would have been anywhere between like 2018 and 2022 when it all went down anywhere in, in that time frame. They wanted the 15-year lease, and if the Coyotes weren't willing to do so, they were going to find another plan for that arena. And the Coyotes, they wanted a short-term, and they've had their eye on Tempe and the East Valley since at least 2016, but the idea had to have originated earlier on. Because Glendale, I love that arena, and I am, I'm personally thankful I wouldn't be the hockey fan I am today without that arena. I'm a West Valley kid. I basically grew up, grew up in that arena. I, I do thank Mayor Scruggs and everyone that was involved in getting that open just for me personally, but it was a mistake. So the Coyotes wanted a short-term deal. Glendale wanted that long-term stability because they didn't want to just have the Coyotes essentially ditch him with this arena, which makes some sense, but it's also like do your five-year deal that gives you more time to plan as well as the Coyotes. It's That would have made more sense to me. And it was a toxic relationship. I don't know how far back that went specifically, but I could definitely say at least since around the bankruptcy, it hasn't exactly been the rosiest. It just, it hasn't by the circumstances. Um, I could tell you, I don't personally like Andrew Barraway, the, the previous majority owner and AZ Ice before that, uh, a lot of the minority owners were really nice people. I was working guest services literally in their area. Like it was, they were nice. They didn't really have the money that you needed. Um, so you have questionable ownership, questionable ownership, you know, bankruptcy, this this ownership, uh, Bearway's ownership, and then Morello. And Morello is a ruthless businessman. He, as Craig Morgan pointed out, uh, has a history of he buys depreciating assets, strips them down to the core, which honestly makes a lot of sense. He builds them back up and he holds on yep. to them because you're making a, a long-term, you know, sustainable business. So all of this coming to a head with Morello's very specific uh, style of this is a, a real thing. I've asked multiple people and gotten the exact same answer. They direct like they one of the exact quotes uh, and, and I, I can actually present this as a quote was we didn't sign that contract when it came to certain vendors. And what it was, was obviously logically, this is just me using logic, not a source but logically morello thought they were paying too much for this or that thought this or that was a bad deal and it it, it was said to me in private um that you know what that's that's a way you can run a hotel or a casino 
but in in the public eye like this it's, yes, it's bad yeah, exactly and morello did not do himself any favors i get the basic logic but when you buy the team you also buy the active contracts if you don't like the active contracts either buy them out or sure you go through the rest of the contract and then and look for something better so like i, I get the basic mindset but it was stupid it was short-sighted and this is not the proper way to do it so you have all these things coming to a head you had that toxic work environment coming in my opinion from the the bear away you know ownership and management that gets transitioned over to morello and let's just say uh it kind of requires someone to be a bit of a pit bull a stereotypical pit bull to be able to to clean that mess up and obviously that's not going to be a great first impression i understand that but it, it needed to get done kind of a thing and the, the the missing payments i i stand by my personal opinion is that that had to be a negotiating tactic because one of Javier's comments after the glendale said we're not going to re-up our lease was essentially we hope to get them back at the bargaining table so that told me straight up by reading that quote that I'm like oh so it was a negotiating tactic and then within 24 or 48 hours of them having a deadline to pay they paid they got all up to date the way they needed to and then whatever was left over they got payment plans but you have this mm -hmm. toxic relationship brewing you have glendale losing money you have coyotes ownership either uh not being very good not paying very well uh morello's tactics which and also i was told by one source again i'll keep them nameless but essentially people that were in charge in the front office of sending payments were fired around the time when this happened i that that doesn't mean that it was hmm. that you know it was a hundred percent an accident, but there could have been an element to it, and and you know I, I, like I said, grain of salt. Any yeah. of us to take it with a grain of salt, but so many yeah. things behind the scenes were mismanaged and not done properly, and too many egos and a lot of money being lost. Everything just came to a head when Glendale wanted that stability. And to be fair, I, I work at, at Desert Diamond Arena now. They kind of have that plan now and they of course you had the public report that last year's record revenues they didn't actually back it up with the numbers i i noticed in those reports but talking to people there they are making some money there which is good it, it just it That's it good. sucks that it had to happen the way it did because i it, it's so easy in hindsight to be like okay well if morello just shut up and paid this bill if glendale shut up and did this if, if such and such like these little fixes and they could have made like a five-year deal work but it, it just everything came to a head glendale wanted that long-term stability the coyotes wanted the financial stability of going to the east valley and everything just it fell apart with a lot of bad decision making yeah you know they could have come up with a five-year renewable or after five years the coyotes could get out of it you know with a you know paying something off or they could have did a seven-year deal I mean, you don't have to do 15 years. And I know people that run arenas all across the uh, country and you want those seats filled. And if you've got a partner that wants to be there for 40 plus games, including hopefully the playoffs and preseason, you want that money to be there. I mean, it's it's tough for arenas to make it if they're not selling out. There, there should be at least 320 events in an arena that's 365 days long. And sometimes, you know, you, you and I both know this from being around arenas and people that run them. They've got circuses that have two or three shows a day. So that's three events in one day. You've got to keep that place packed and full of people. So it was in Morello's best interest and their best interest to get something done. I mean, I, I don't know why they couldn't get something done. It just, it baffles me, but I've met a lot of rich people in my life. And I'm going to tell you, nope. uh, Matthew, uh, they don't like to lose, <laughs> even if it's something small. And that's why they're rich. 
A lot of people say, oh, they're rich because they spend money. No, no, no. They're, they're rich, rich because, because they don't like, like I, I, spending I forget money. which Fast and Furious it was, but it's like, hey, you got a, I think it's like you got a dollar, you got changed. Like, oh, you're a millionaire. That's how you stay a millionaire. Like rich people, uh, they also don't keep a lot of liquid cash. They Everything is in assets because even as I'm trying to become more financially Everything's stable, tied up in everything assets. that I watch, anything that I read, it's always like you want your money to be in assets on the market buying, you know, whatever it is. I'm not going to say what I, I invest in, but it's like you want your money working for you. And it makes a lot of sense. So it's like for someone like Morello, like, again, it makes sense why, hey, this is an unnecessary cost. Hey, Glendale long term isn't financially stable. I'm not signing 15 years because that will be. 15 years of losses and you might have some profitability i guess if the team's really good but it's just it's so difficult with how far away it is from everyone and the cardinals can get away with it they play mostly on sundays it's eight to ten games a year including uh preseason and it's like the thursday night games are a nightmare to get to but people make it you know eight ten times a year not 41 yep yep exactly Let's talk about some young guys that are exciting to everybody out there. I know Clayton Keller is, and I don't know this. This is rubs me wrong. Every time a, a team is, you know, financially unsound or something's going on and there's turmoil, every Blues fan and a lot of the media, especially the hockey writers, and I don't mind calling them out. Oh, the Blues are going to have conversations about bringing K Clayton Keller to St. Louis. I, I don't. You know what? It's, the chance of that happening, I see, is like point zero 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 nine percent. Clayton Keller's not coming from St. To, coming to St. Louis. I, I can say this. I, I guarantee you'll know where I'm going with this. Um, conversations about Austin Matthews probably happen at least a few times a year. It doesn't mean it's a serious conversation or that the GM's actually listening. They might have a podcast on the background or, or something. Like, you can call on whoever you want. Um, sometimes it, it, you go to voicemail. Sometimes you get hung up on. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some other players. You've got, a, I think, a nice young defense. Why don't you – Tell Blues fans and other NHL fans about some of your young defensemen who you think are going to make a mark in the next two to three years. Oh, J.J. Moser already made his mark. Uh, he, he was an overager and was the 2020 draft or yep. uh, yeah, 2020 draft. And he immediately came right in. Uh, my friend Kyle Pereira, who's a, who's a um, you know amateur scout, uh, told me a lot of good things about him and made me look really smart when I was talking about that <laughs> pick afterwards. Um, he's someone that. I love his his defense. I love his his even his body positioning. He reminds me so much defensively of like a is a Beanick McCulloch. Uh, he also has that surprising little bit of offensive upside. He's a top four defenseman already, and and he's not going anywhere. Uh, Yuso Valamaki, uh, being a little bit older, but like still in his early, you know mid twenties, uh, he came in kind of helped revitalize his career a little bit. He's a sound defenseman, has some offensive upside. Usually puck moving, kind of like uh, Moser. But I, if Soderstrom is a is a player I want to talk about briefly because I'm still bitter. The Coyotes could have had Caulfield, or I think Boldy was <laughs> another one of those picks. But Soderstrom is someone that I've looked at, I've been so unimpressed with until I wasn't. And his defensive ability has gotten better and better. He's just a very sound defenseman, still young. He's going to make his mistakes. I, I had a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. I think it was in 2021 when Capobianco and him were fighting for a spot. 
And, he, you know, hey, what would happen if, if you had the puck here in a situation? Oh, I would just shoot it. The first few games of that year, he did it. And I'm like, I was impressed. I liked his confidence. Then it just died. It just went away. And the AHL, he was mostly a, a kind of a setup guy, really good puck mover. You still need that. But you're starting to notice a pattern of too many puck moving defensemen, not <laughs> enough <laughs> that are going to blast that one from yeah. the point, which you need a guy to get you 10 or so. You do. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, you, but you definitely do. He, he then at the end of last year, there's this moment in Mullet Arena. I think it was before the overtime against the Devils, and it, it was after the trade deadline. And, and they're mm-hmm. interviewing Soderstrom. He's like, you know, it was kind of demoralizing that we lost so many players, and then we kind of knew what was going to happen. And then Coach Bear kind of rallied all of them, and he was talking about that. And he had a really good stretch, and I, I think that he went from someone that, in my opinion, was in danger of potentially being a reclamation guy. You swap for someone else to okay, I don't know what happened. Like, I know the defense was there. He was working on that for a while, but the offense started to click again. If he can keep it going, maybe he could still be a top four defenseman. Yeah, it, possible. Four or five. Yeah, and and minimum, I think, a, a bottom pair because he, you're still going to need mm-hmm. that because a lot of guys, hey, I might not be an OEL offensive type. I'll just focus on defense, and that's a brilliant thing about a lot of defensemen so i think they're thin defensively but they have a couple of interesting pieces jeremy langlois played very well at the memorial cup congratulations for for that and i i really i i didn't have too much of an opinion of him at last training camp last rookie camp i'm going to keep a close eye on him this time because we we need a little bit extra and i feel like he might be able to make a bit of a jump and other than that, we need some more prospects coming in, but th- there's a couple of interesting pieces, and I think the defense, it, it's going to get there, but we we definitely could use a Reinbacher type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of teams could. <laughs> um, one guy you and I have talked about, and you know how much I love him since I was a goaltender, is Carell. He's, he's uh, I, I really like what he does, and I know he's – this is the mistake a lot of non-hockey people and even some hockey people outside looking in – well, he wasn't even 500, and his goals against was 3.4, and his save percentage was low. But I thought towards the end of the season, I thought he played really, really well. And, you know, some guys, it takes a little bit of a time to become good goaltenders. The two hardest positions to come into the NHL are defense and goaltending. Those are the two yep. hardest. I'll have people argue with me all day about it. Those are the two hardest. That's why it takes some defensemen that are touted as these great guys takes them five, six, seven years sometimes to become really comfortable and good. You and I have talked about it, but why don't we tell the fans what you think of Corral? I, I, I do just want to extend your point very briefly before I answer that is uh, how often do we hear of a young center or a young winger coming in and immediately clicking versus a young defenseman or young goaltender immediately clicking? It's just, it takes longer. Yeah. It, it just, it does. And Karel Melka is someone that he had a, a really good season in terms of expectations because he came out of nowhere, still yep. a roster spot the last year at Glendale. That contract extension, I'll agree slightly with my old co-host Richie that he was probably a little overpaid a, a little bit, but he still is a really quality goaltender. And the, the 500 record thing, that is – on a playoff team, you should be 500. On a non-playoff team, I don't think it's really relevant. Yeah. And he kept his save percentage exactly. somewhere around 900 most of the year. And he has his bad starts. He'll have a start where he gives up five or six goals, and that does happen. The the defense in front of him ranges between really, really surprisingly solid and borderline not there. So you have to take that with a bit of a grain of salt, but you watch him. His positioning is really good. 
Um, and he has the ability, how many times did even you as essentially national media, did you hear, oh yeah, Vimelka stole another game. Oh, that game, the Coyotes won. Vimelka had 37 saves and, you know, 40 yeah, saves. Yeah, yeah th there was one night, I think he had 43 or 44 saves and I, I watched that game. I try to watch at least 15, 20 games of each team. It's really hard sometimes, but I try to just so if somebody asks me, I at least know what the heck I'm talking yeah. about talk about him we know that I, I think if he continues to grow and yeah he's a late bloomer but you know he was originally drafted by nashville and and look who Na nashville had there when he was drafted by them i mean th they had pekka pekka rene and he was gonna the carter hutton at the time i believe was there at the time before he came to the blues he was gonna have a hard time breaking that lineup but another guy that it's it's just getting to me and i've watched a lot of aiden hill in his mm -hmm. career and now that he's with the knights all these people want to keep him in Vegas. A lot of people in Vegas want to sign him. And there's people out there that think this guy's going to get, you know, six, seven million dollars a year. No, Aiden Hill is not going to get six, seven million dollars a year. Aiden Hill is the guy in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, since you've probably seen him more than me. Um, I think that he's a backup. Uh, he can play you, give you 20, 25 games, maybe. And he can come in and steal the game for you. If a guy's doing bad in the first period, he can come in and keep the game respectable. But I just don't see him as a number one goaltender. Here's the thing with with uh, th that number. Um, I would not, I'm not expecting this. I don't think it will happen. I would not be shocked if someone gave him five or six mil for a year or two. That's, I was thinking five. Yeah, I was thinking five. I would not be shocked because teams overreact a lot. And, and goaltending... Yeah. Uh, Look, on Ranta, even though I was never his biggest fan, he had these flashes. Darcy Kemper yeah, came did. out of nowhere to be a consistent NHL level starter. It's one it's one of the weirdest positions. And and I've said it before multiple times. If you look at the, the top three goalies of any given year, skip ahead five years, how many of them are not anywhere near what they were? Thank you very <laughs> you know, you know, um, I, I, I had this discussion when Jordan Bennington had his big year when we won the cup. Uh -huh. And they were calling him the greatest Blues goalie ever because he won the cup and he's going to be better than than Wah and, and Brodeur and, and, you know, the old timers like me, Sawchuk and Fuhr. And I, I'm going, hey, I was a goaltender. Let's see what this guy does four or five years down the road. If he's still good, not as good as he was that year because nobody's going to have a save percentage of 1.86, you know, and our, our goals against a 1.86 and a save percentage of 942 their whole career. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Teams learn, and they learn very quickly with him. In that second year, teams were going high glove side. And the reason was he's he wasn't holding his glove in the proper position. He was holding it too, uh, too far down, and it was pointing down instead of being flat straight out to where he could come up and get that high, hot shot on his glove uh -huh. side. And I told people, hey, give him five years. He's not the goaltender that he was in that six months of the season when we won the cup, but he's also not the goaltender that had a bad year last year or the year before that. You've got to give these goalies five, six, seven years before you judge them. And I think too many times, Matthew, these people see these great young goaltenders, i.e. Carter Hart, that they're, <laughs> that they're talking about trading. I mean, you remember all the Philly fans, Carter Hart's the next Bernie Parent. And just like I told everybody about, about Bennington, give him four to five years and we'll see who he is. You cannot 
have a goalie have one good year and say he's great. You just can't. And you can say he was great that year. That year. You can say he he should be great or he should be a good, a really good player. And and like I, I love a lot of those examples you gave. I want to throw in Ilya Brzgalov. I love and respect yeah, Ilya Brzgalov. Yep. He just a lot so many goalies have a short shelf life, and it's not because they're bad. You proved a very good point with Bennington there is you watch a lot of footage, you figure a guy out. And if you rattle him, if you rattle a goalie that can set them back years. Now, eventually they could get back to where they were. They can get even better. They can bounce back after a week. It could take them three or four years to get back to where they were. It's, it is such an interesting position. There's also so many unnatural movements and, and quick movements that tiny little things that wouldn't really impact a forward or a defenseman can be the, the difference between you stopping that or just tucking in between your legs and tucking above your pad. So goaltending is so frustrating. And to get back to Aiden Hill, he did this for the Coyotes when he first came up. And, and Rick Tockett, and I will never stop with the Rick Tockett slander, is a terrible coach <laughs> in the context of goaltenders and, and offensive production because it's a really old-school hockey mindset of riding the hot hand. Riding the hot hand is not inherently wrong, but when you start to see the hot hand get cooler and cooler, give the kid a day or two off. Do not play them in back-to-backs. Not everyone is Vasilevsky. Not everyone can do that. Don't rely on the back-to-backs like that and get get these kids what they actually need as opposed to, oh, hey, you gave up four goals on 24 shots. Go back out there tomorrow night. Hey, you're getting six more, seven more starts in a row. I'm like, hey, you got a backup goalie. Maybe let the backup goalie get the next game or the game after next so you're getting a proper workload going because it's, it's, it's the most active position on the ice. And Aiden Hill showed the upside. He showed the downside and struggles. I completely agree, and I even said it years ago. He's a NHL backup goaltender. He's a fringe starter at best, and we're seeing that right now with Vegas, and good for them. I'm happy for Aiden. I I have no no ill will against him. If he wins a cup, congratulations. But it's just I I do not see him being a starting goaltender in three years. No, some like you said, I think somebody will give him five mil for two years, two, three years. And after one year, they're going to regret they gave him five mil. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even because he's bad. It's because they're going to overvalue what he brought. Well, Matt, we've talked about a lot of things. I wanted to talk to you about the cup. I know a lot of people thought that the Golden Knights had a chance to get there. But I think with the way Florida was kind of up and down through the season, a lot of people were not on the Panthers bandwagon and that they really had a hard time in some of those series and it took them, you know, overtime in some games and long series to get to where they're at. And I think they wore themselves out. And I think Vegas, even though the Panthers had more rest, Vegas just looks crisper. They're they're They come to the puck quicker. And anytime somebody from Florida has got a puck, there's a guy or two on him. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, the the limited amount of, of the games that I was watching, I forgot what I was doing during game two, but I, I tried to make sure to watch at least some of, of these games and it's just no matter what florida does it, it feels like they they can't they just can't and like it's funny because people looked at me like i was an idiot for having them go into the cup finals this year in my in my prediction and it was just by happenstance of whoever i had winning in the rounds i was oh florida will edge them out florida will edge them out they just happen to throw them there and I, I loved watching their run that that literally I know it's a meme, but that literally was the, the most competitive and closest sweep we've probably yeah, ever that seen. Was between close. Carolina. That was really close, yeah. <laughs> 
that was crazy. I feel bad for Carolina fans there, but you know, Roddy really couldn't do much more to coach his boys out of that one. It was just no, no. But at the beginning of the season, uh, Guy and I on his 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 vlog, we all picked teams, and I, the three I picked for the East were uh, Carolina, Florida, and Toronto. But I, I, I caveated it with this. If Toronto can't get good goaltending and their defense is what it's always has been, they will not get past the first or second round. And they keep having the same problem every year. And, you know, we can get into that a little bit. Let's finish with this. I just get too excited about talking like you do. Um, I think people are being too hard on Matthew, Matthew Kachuk. I, I keep seeing articles from uh, hockey news and not just hockey writers. Cause you know, a lot of those hockey writers aren't credentialed media and they're just guys like you and me writing stories. And there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of these people, Kachuk needs to show up. Kachuk needs to score. Kachuk needs to, no, there's 22 other guys on that team. They need to do their part too. And right now, I don't think people say, well, they're trying Vegas is just that much better. I don't agree with that. I think they're pretty evenly matched teams. I just think Vegas is outworking them. Vegas is outworking them. And also, I, I have a personal theory that with how long Florida sat, I think they, they might have – you can see it when you sit too long. Even just me or you personally, we we work for a while, we're tired, we sit down, and if you sit down too long, you get you, your legs get heavy. I, I think we're seeing a bit of that, and Vegas is just hungrier. And Kachuk even still – I know it was a garbage time goal, but he's even still scored in this series – he's pulling his weight offensively. He also three game winning goals in the, in the last series. He's, he's done everything he possibly can. And if he ran out of the tank a little bit, it, yeah, this is the worst possible time to have it. And the only thing that I'm going to give him is he's taking stupid penalties and he's, and instead of him being the instigator, he's being instigated and he has thrown a couple of bad checks. He has done a couple of, of little dirty or, or wimpy little things like the, the incident with, you know, behind the net where he kind of threw himself in the net. Um, there is, I think there's one hit where his shoulder was a little high. Um, so like, so there have been a couple of things he has done. I never thought he was dirty. I'm still not going to label him as dirty, but I do think he's made, he's made some dumb decisions in this series, but it isn't just on him. Bobrovsky hasn't been on his game. The defense has not been on their game. No one else is showing up to score the way they need it. Like the team almost feels like they just ran out of gas at the worst, like almost like Boston. I don't buy into President's Trophy winners because I got burned with Tampa Bay or uh, Florida a year or two ago. So it's like, I got burned. I, I don't buy into them anymore. And with Boston, like even, I think it was game seven, I was watching it, Bobrovsky was playing scared. The, the first couple of periods, he was extra twitchy. He looked uncomfortable, extra looked very like, uncomfortable. Oh, he's playing, yeah. And then he just sunk in and he was fine. And it looked like Boston just couldn't do anything, despite the fact they, in a lot of aspects, were outplaying them. There's a lot of similarities, minus the outplaying part with Florida here. They just feel like there's nothing in the tank. You know what it reminds me of? And I know you don't watch a lot of Blues or Sharks hockey. It reminds me, I think it was 2015-16, when the Blues were in the conference finals against the Sharks. They look like they just, from the, from the drop of the puck of game one, they look like they were just done that they'd spent, they'd spent all their energy on beating, you know, at beating, I think Dallas and Chicago. And they were just so worn out. Both of those were seven game series. And by the time they got to San Jose, San Jose, I think played a four game series, a six game series and a four or five game series. So they're a lot more rested, but they weren't so rested to where they lost momentum. And if you go back and watch those games in that series, 
the the blues just look like they they just can't keep up. They look like they look like they need a gallon of Gatorade for each of them or a two day rest or something. And I think that's kind of what happened with with Florida. And another thing I've noticed when it comes to Bobrovsky, if you can pepper him with a lot of shots, you know, like one shot and he gives up a rebound, another shot, and you do that time and time again, you're just like any goalie, you're going to beat him. But when he's on, and I know the speaking as being a goalie, when you're on, that puck looks like a beach ball. It, it does. Uh-huh. And when you're off and you're not tracking well, it looks like a poker chip. I mean, you you just, no matter what you do, you're fighting through it, you're struggling through it. And in that game one, he he did not look like the, he didn't look like the goalie that for the most part in those first three series, I know he was pulled in that game, one game, but for the most part, he was just on, but yeah, he, something's wrong. And I don't know, maybe he's tired. You know, he's never been this far in the playoffs in his life. Tired, fatigued, you get a goalie rattled, even the best goal. If you rattle Vasilevsky, you're going to be able to beat him. And the thing, Bob Rosky is almost like an anti-Brishgalov. Brishgalov, you don't pepper him enough early on. He gets bored and gives up bad goals. Bob Rosky, you got to pepper him a little too. Like every goalie has that sweet spot. And and hell, it even sounds like you were describing the 2020 Coyotes. They make it through the playing round. They play against uh, Colorado, and they're just playing tense, like they don't belong to be there. And, and then they just kind of get blown out of the water. It kind of that's almost a perfect comparison. And I hate bringing up that memory. That's what made me hate <laughs> Adam Avalanche and Colorado Avalanche fans was that series. Uh, but it's, it's just unfortunate because no matter what positive, we're going to get a new Stanley cup winner positive, uh, a desert hockey or a, another Sunbelt team will win the cup. No matter what, there's a positive outcome, but just Florida felt, and I completely agree and buy into this, except for these last couple of games, Florida felt like that team of destiny. And it's kind of sad to watch. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Cause you've seen how hard they work. I told people it's going to go five. If Bobrovsky is on, it's going to go five. If he's off, it could go seven. And I, you know, everybody's counting them out. You know, well, look what happened in the Leaf series. Everybody, you know, counted Florida out on the Leaf series. Or against Boston where they're down three to one. Like all you need to do, like game three is a must win. You cannot go down 0-3. You just, you can't. But game three, you start there and you have to start playing like every game is an elimination game. And it's one at a time. You first got to win game three. Obviously you, you have to win both. You cannot go back to Vegas down three, one, but if you can win game three, you gain some confidence, gain some momentum, win game four, go back to Vegas tied. It is a completely different conversation we're having. Completely different. Um, I wanted to, I, I know we talked about the Bruins. We'll talk about them a little bit. I, I kept telling people when the blues lost Jim Montgomery as their assistant coach, I said it was going to hurt him. A lot of people told me I was nuts. And um, he goes to Boston, makes a few changes, got a lot of the same lineup they've had there the last couple of years. And they were just so focused for that season. And it's like you said, the president's trophy just ruins teams, but I think they will be just as good next year. And maybe they'll learn, Hey, you know, we don't need to push this hard. Yeah. It's great to get home ice advantage through the playoffs. If you win the president's trophy, but you got to get to the cup to make it worth it. Yeah, and, and like the thing with the President's Trophy curse is I don't believe in curses like the Madden curse or whatever, but there's logic behind this because uh, I, I think the hockey guy actually said it, which kind of made me start thinking this way, is it, it's an 82-game season. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And if we saw it with the Phoenix Suns when they finished first overall uh, in, in the Western Conference a couple of years ago and, and got destroyed in Game 7 at home, is when you're maintaining this record pace – 
it will come to an end and you peak too early and, and just that is one of the biggest problems it's like i i would rather like the, the suns that went to the finals in 2021 no one really saw that coming they were still in the top half of the conference but they were not the number one seed i would much rather be around the middle of the pack of, of the playoff teams not 500 middle of the pack of the playoff teams because then not only did it does it show more consistency does it show that it's a little more sustainable but then also you don't really have a, a magnifying glass on you because if you're the suns in that year if you're even the nuggets this year going back to hockey if you're florida last year boston this year you have a target on your back and if you can't step up, be it just you run out of gas or you get outplayed or it's a bad matchup, doesn't matter. If you can't step up, you become a meme and you also become easier to figure out. <laughs> and like you said, it's not a curse. It's just a fact. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to, you, you have this goal. And when you're focusing on being one of the best teams ever and winning 60 plus games and we've got to get her, your focus isn't on, okay, let's do this game. Let's take this game one at a time. And, you know, you could kind of see that happening towards the end of the season when they weren't playing as well as they had, you know, but Boston wasn't bad at the end of the season, but they, you could tell that they were not playing as well as they had in the previous months. And it's tough. And, you know, I have people tell me I'm crazy when I tell them, you know, when people say, well, the blues need to play a heavy style every minute of the game, they need to out have everybody. I go, listen, I want you to go back to every game they played this season and tell me, tell me how many times they out hit people and lost. No, that they didn't lose very, I go, go back and look. And do you know, most times when the blues out hit people, they lose. Do you know why? And I explained to people because it wears you out. Number one, number two, if you're just out there hitting and hitting and hitting, you get out of position, which causes two on ones, three on twos, three on ones. You can't just be hitting everything in sight. And, and I, I talked to Grant Fuhr about this and I said, Grant, there's a lot of fans in St. Louis that don't believe me when I tell them that you cannot play that heavy style for 82 games in a season and expect to a stay healthy or expect to be be strong in the playoffs he said you know what he said if you played 40 games that style 25 games he said you'd have three or four guys on ir and th then you're done he said you cannot play that style every single game for every single minute it's just impossible and like and if you wanted to do it every game you can't do it every shift you just you can't and and even then like i I'm not a hundred percent sure if as as low as twenty five games, but I can still see that logic because it depends on how you're implementing it. And if if you're just like you said, only hitting, just trying to go out of your way to only hit, you're out of position. Uh, a lot of the times, if you're not really thinking about it, these tiny little things like you tweak your ankle, you you tweak mm -hmm. up your shoulder a little bit, and then it builds, it gets worse. It's an underlying injury. A big hit three games later, you're done for two or three months. Well, we're running out of time here, Matthew. I want to thank you for joining me. You want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, uh, and YouTube at AZ Sports Guy, on Twitter at the AZ Sports Guy. And if you want some baseball and, and arena football, uh, AZ Sports Guy Plus on YouTube. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Drop Podcast. To get more of The Drop, check out our website at droppodcast.com. You can also find us on Google Play, iTunes, and the iHeartRadio app. You can follow us on Instagram at the.drop.podcast or on Twitter at Drop Hockey Show. You can email The Drop Podcast or host Lance to Scott at lanced at droppodcast.com. Until next time, let's go Blues!